Hello, my name is Ran, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, my co-host Joe Stewart and I speak with inspiring movers, thinkers, and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. I hope you are well today in this ever-changing world. I think Joe and I are coming up to three weeks of self-isolating now. There's ups and downs, obviously, but generally we're doing okay. We have a roof over our heads and we are incredibly grateful for the things that we have. For this episode, we are speaking with Alicia Leonard. Alicia is a yoga teacher. She leads Kirtan and she's done a lot of work around inclusivity and was included in Victoria's LGBTIQ leadership course last year. So we were really excited to speak with her. Now, this episode was recorded well before the crazy times that we're living in now. When we spoke to her, she was headed over to London via India and things changed pretty rapidly after she left. So I asked Alicia if she could give us a brief update on what her situation is currently like. I'll play her update before we get into the interview. It's a possibly strange editorial move, but I thought you might like to know how she's doing now. Before we get started, this episode was brought to you by our sponsor, Yoga Australia. Registering teachers and training courses to ensure that everyone in Australia has access to quality yoga teachers. All right, let's hear from Alicia, then we'll get into our conversation recorded a few months ago. Hi, Ron and Joe, and Flow Artists, podcast enthusiasts. This is Alicia aka home song and i'm just recording an addendum to our podcast we recorded a little while ago because as you might be aware the world has changed and so when i recorded the podcast i was packing up my house and about to leave melbourne to move to london for a new adventure with my lover and what actually happened was we left our house on March the 10th and went to India. It was supposed to be for two months holiday. And also I was doing a sound training, singing and mantra, devotional Indian style sound training. And I guess three days in India, it started to become apparent that things were not so good in the world. And we made the decision to leave India um, and make our way to England before they stopped traveling. And so I find myself in England. Thankfully, my partner has a flat here in London, in Clapham, which is small but cozy and we have a really nice garden. So where I thought I'd be arriving in India and then able to share kirtan and chanting and sound practices and meditation and yoga, I cannot. So like everyone, we're just inside and spending time with ourselves, spending lots of time cooking and eating, (laughs) doing lots of yoga. And I'm so thankful for all the online practices that are being shared and offered for free and low cost. And yeah, it's really changing the way we connect with others at the moment connecting online instead of in a physical way and it's been quite challenging for me because I'm I quite like to have a lot of things on the go I like to have things that I'm doing and places to be and people to see and I'm also a bit of a nurturer and I can't sort of do those things right now Um, so I'm sort of feeling a bit isolated I'm also really aware that this is temporary and yep it could be three months six months 
but it's temporary. It will pass and we'll get through it. And I'm really grateful for the tools that I have on my body and my breath, movement practices like yoga, which allow me to stay grounded and stay connected with others, with my feelings and with what's going on. And I guess I'm just reminding myself that I have somewhere to live. I'm safe. While I might not have financial security right now, job security, um, many of us don't. I have the privilege of having so many other things and this is temporary. So I'm sending my wishes out to everyone that you can stay safe and well and be with the present, the challenges and the positive things that arise from this time. And I'm looking forward to connecting again in future in a physical way, hugging. All right, Alicia, thank you so much for making it here today. We've been looking forward to speaking with you. So I guess maybe we could just start with you telling us a little bit about your background and where you grew up. Yeah, thanks, Ron and Joe, so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. I grew up in Sydney in a fairly nice suburb. You know, I didn't really want for anything. And I moved to Melbourne about 10 years ago. And funnily, my mum used to practice yoga Um, I remember I have memories of her sort of lying on a purple mat in the living room doing funny things, and I thought it was really boring (laughs) at the time. Um, And here we are. So my partner's actually English, and so we sort of visit England every year or so. We go and see my family in Sydney every year or a couple of times a year if we can. And we're about to move to England. So that's a big move. I know. <laughs> yeah. So I know you said that you watched your mother do yoga and yeah. you thought it was really boring. What actually turned you around there? It's funny, isn't it? I think you sort of, something might be right in front of you and it's not until you're in the right space or ready to receive whatever that is. Yeah. I mean, I used to go along with her as a teenager to the yoga classes at the local kind of rec center just to spend time together. But yeah, in honesty, I thought it was quite boring. And then many years later, I I, I came to yoga in a funny way because I was quite active. I used to uh, run a lot and do triathlons and you know, that's quite hard on the body. (laughs) I was pondering taking up yoga or Pilates for a while, but it's one of those things that you put off. And actually my partner and I were planning our wedding in England. Uh, So we caught up with this guy who's a chef, he's English, and he was dividing his time between England summer and Melbourne most of the year. So we caught up with him at a cafe in Fitzroy, would you believe? And he brought his partner. And so we're sort of planning our wedding in England. And She said, oh, I'm actually a yoga teacher and I teach around the corner. And so this was at Gertrude Street Yoga Studio. And so we decided that at our wedding, it might be a nice thing to have some yoga classes because we had quite a small wedding with all our family and a few friends all staying together in a house. And so we had uh, yoga classes. So that was my first sort of experience as an adult at my wedding, (laughs) the day before and the day of my wedding. And I loved it. And so when we came back, I thought, yeah, this is really something I want to explore. And I've been pretty much in a monogamous relationship with the studio since then. So that would have been about five, just over five years. Yeah. So I'd say I'm fairly new, you know, to yoga for someone who's a teacher. I've heard of newer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I could 
there be a better introduction to mm. yoga? Like yeah. practicing with all of your loved ones yeah. in this beautiful celebratory way when you're about to move into this new phase of your life. Totally. And yeah. it was pretty hilarious too because, you know, we had, my, I think, my dad and uh, my partner's mum and auntie and uncle practiced, you know, all sort of 60, 70-year-olds. And then we had young kids running in. And so really it just sort of teaches you, you know, mindfulness and acceptance and kindness and things like that. So, yeah, it was it's a it's a moment I think back on quite a lot. You know, what a profound sort of moment in my life. Yeah. And was your mum like, I told you so? No, <laughs> but she she passed away about um, oh, seven years ago. Mm. Yeah. So I I think I, you know, as we all sort of feel that we're becoming our parents a little bit as we get older. Um, and yeah, I do I do think fondly about it. I think that she would really love that I'm practicing and that I've discovered that and it's a big part of my life. So, yeah, I can imagine her thinking that. <laughs> it's kind of a really beautiful way to honor her yeah. as well. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Mm. So, since you found this love of yoga, have you found any key teachers? Yeah, I mean, mostly in Melbourne, I would say. Um, and Shoshana Orenstein, she was the the wife of the chef who sort of first introduced us. Um, and so I practiced with her for a bit at Gertrude Street. And I guess a lot of the teachers I resonate with are based at Gertrude Street in Fitzroy. And I sort of played around a lot with, you know, a stronger practice. But yeah, for me, because I'm quite fiery and stubborn, I, I found that a softer, more gentle practice is better for me. So I sort of resonate with a lot of the trauma-informed teachers, a few you've had on the show. So like Joe Buick, uh, May Lai, Alice Hobday, who's now in uh, Berlin, and Hannah, who owns the Gertrude Street Studio. And I guess I'd also say that more recently I, I find that I'm, I'm friends with a lot of my teachers. So, yeah, a lot of my friends I find I'm learning from constantly, you know, physical practice or meditation or sound practice as well. And speaking of sound practice, I know that you have a real love of kirtan. Yes. So how did you, um, how did that love develop? Yeah, it's funny. I used to play piano when I was a kid, but I never really read music. So I sort of got to a certain point and I always loved singing and I, I wouldn't say I was ever particularly amazing at it, but I, I did love to do it. And I think a lot of us remember singing at church, you know, my family weren't really religious, but I, I didn't mind going to church and I used to actually choose to go as a teenager so I could participate in singing, which I, I find quite funny looking back because I'm not really religious. Yeah. And so I, I'd been practicing yoga and I, I'd noticed a few teachers would sometimes sing, chant a mantra or one of my teachers, May Lai, would sometimes have her little organ, a harmonium it's called and sing in Shavasana. And I always thought it was nice, but it didn't, you know, blow me away until I was doing, I decided to do my teacher training. Not so much to teach, but more that I had this thirst for knowledge and I, I found that you couldn't really, I couldn't satisfy my need through normal classes. And so I thought I'd do a teacher training purely to learn as much as I could. Um, and May Lai was one of the teachers. So we had four amazing humans on that teaching team. And, and so we learned mantras and um, the meaning and about the deities and it was a time where I was probably quite raw and yeah I just completely fell in love with it and it's quite funny because I didn't really know much about it and you know we're singing songs in Sanskrit in Indian and so you don't know the literal meaning a lot of the time but yeah after the teacher training I 
basically went and bought a harmonium (laughs) with an idea to teach myself and it was pretty clunky. (laughs) Probably the first year was pretty clunky. So it's probably been about two years now that I've been playing. Um, that, That background with piano must have helped. Maybe a tiny bit, but not a huge amount. I right. think if you know, if you know music theory and you can read music, it would. But yeah, I mean, I, I have a different story to a lot of people who lead Kirtan because a lot of people might have lived in an ashram or had an experience like that where they've been surrounded by people taught in that way. Whereas I, the spark was ignited and then I sort of decided to discover it a bit myself and self-taught for a bit, which was, yeah, as I say, a bit clunky. So now I have an amazing teacher, Jacinta, who I do voice and some harmonium sort of lessons with and a flute teacher, Vinod. And yeah, it's just accelerated my my learning. Yeah. And so I I have a few people that I play with regularly and we play around Melbourne um, and it's a joy. It's really like an amazing community, different ages and abilities and yeah. Just to cycle back to something that you mentioned earlier, I'm really interested in this because some teachers really don't go into the meaning of the chant at all and other teachers really explore that side of it and see it as a really important part of the practice. Mm. Where are you at on that continuum? Yeah, for me, I really like to know what it is that I'm singing about and the meaning. And I find that quite important to convey to people. So I try to, yeah, try to sort of explain the meaning if it's in a class. Well, more, more often it's in a kirtan. Um, so there is an opportunity to do that. And I think it changes the way that you receive it and that you participate in it because you actually can, there's something for you to sort of ponder while you're singing together. And so... Yeah, it's also, it's just sort of a nice story to have for people to, to share with other people then. And, and also most of the chants I sing have been shared to me by a teacher or by a friend. And so I also think it's important to honour that where it's come from. I guess also in respect to, you know, the tradition of yoga. And yes, like I'm a white woman sharing these devotional practices and the way I can sort of justify, the way I can best be really authentic about that is to share everything that's been taught to me or everything I know about that with other people. Sanskrit is a funny language because it doesn't translate literally So it's more like, it can be described more like a feeling that's translated through the vibration of the sounds. So sometimes people will have a slightly different translation or interpretation of something. Actually, like I'm not a confident singer at all and I felt pretty awkward in most kirtans Mm. when I did them in Australia. And it wasn't until I was in an ashram in Rishikesh where the teacher really broke down each syllable and we practiced all of those individually and then we put them together that I actually like tapped into the meditative aspect of the practice because mm. it took it away from like oh everyone knows what they're doing and they're all really good at singing and I'm just feeling a bit like oh, I don't even know what this word means or how to say it and I kind of was able to really feel into the benefits of that practice. So I really appreciate mm. as much information and depth as the teacher wants to convey when yeah. it comes to Kyoto and I think you can put that out and people can take take it if they want. Some people I think are happy to just sing along and vaguely give the words a crack and then yeah, I'm a bit like you Joe. I really absorb information. I want to know as much as I can about something. And there's also people that it doesn't resonate with them and that's also fine. And so just like with 
any offering in a class. I think it should be communicated and, and optional, preferably. Yeah. And I guess the beautiful thing about leading Kirtans is everyone knows exactly what they're signing up for. Yeah. Everyone's at least committed to giving it a try or to just listening in an intentional way. Yeah. No one's yeah. there thinking, oh, I didn't know there was going to be singing. <laughs> totally. And yeah, I have played, I have led quite a few workshops with friends and other teachers. And so people have known that they're signing up for something that has sound and there will be an optional Kirtan at the end. And so, yeah, I have also in a hand a handful of yoga classes shared at the end, but it's sort of an, an option for people. Yeah, whereas in a kirtan, I mean, some people don't sing. They just lie there and receive. There's people dancing. And I love it when people bring their kids and they're making noise. It's actually really delightful. And you see, you'll see across the time period where it can be a little bit stiff at first. People are feeling a bit like, ah. Oh, should I sing? What are the words? You know, they're holding onto the sheet for dear life. And then by the end of the practice, everyone's throwing their sheet with the words away. They're lying down, they're dancing around and they've really like opened up. It's an honor to share it with other people because I've received that and it's been really, it's been a really profound part of my life. Like it's opened me up to discovering more about myself and just, it's a great form of practice for me to meditate and practice kindness and compassion. And yeah, I, I feel sort of like it's a great service to give back. Um, cause mostly the kirtans I run a community style where there might be a donation. Um, I usually, we don't get paid. And so it's a nice thing for pe people to be able to come and yeah, give back to them. It sounds like you are really skillful. <laughs> at shaping the journey of the kirtan. What advice or strategies do you have for yoga teachers who'd love to bring a bit more sound or a bit more kirtan into their classes, but maybe they've tried it and it felt a bit awkward and it didn't really take off or they're leading it and it's just like people aren't vibing. Mm. Do you have any little tricks up your sleeve? Well, I think I think it doesn't necessarily have to be a kirtan, which is call and response chanting. So it could be that someone just wants to start by sharing a mantra that they love. And it's hard. As soon as you ask someone to sing um, or use their voice, people are filled with terror. You know, we suddenly think of a time we've been told that our voice isn't good or we're too loud or things like this. There's lots of trauma associated with using your voice. And it is a hard one, you know, and I struggle personally. And it's taken me a while to sort of get through that and be okay with what comes out and crackles and, you know, accepting your own voice in everything it has to offer. So I guess I would say it's not about the sound of your voice and it's not about hitting perfect note. In fact, you just really want to be authentic. Like, so it's not a performance. It's just a, a, an offering that you're sharing. And so, yeah, it could be less daunting to start with something like some sound bowls or there's lots of great apps out there like um, iTabla or Tempura app. Um, and you can get free versions where you can play like a drone sound and then someone might um, chant a mantra over the top of that. So I would say those could be really good starting points. And in when people are in shav Shavasana, it's a great time because they're sort of cute, wrapped up little babies and they've got their eyes closed. So, you know, it's less daunting. Sometimes when you're leading a kirtan and they're all staring back at you, you think, oh, my gosh, what am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> it is quite nerve-wracking. And I guess, yeah, I would just say playing around at home as well with different things and seeing what resonates. And if... It doesn't work for some people to share with a group, then that might be the case. 
I found as well a great way in is like the om bath or mm. the spontaneous oms yeah. because even if you're not like a really confident singer, everyone can do an om. Mm. And if everyone's doing it at a different time and a different pace anyway, it all melds together into a beautiful whole that you don't have to worry about getting the words right. Yeah. I think there's something to be said for where you're practicing as well. So a lot of studios might have an established kirtan or teachers who offer sound. And so the students might be a bit more open or used to it. Whereas some places, a lot of them all have never experienced a kirtan or chanting before. So you find that you get less of a sort of response. Yeah, I reckon you'd have to really like be very confident in your power to yeah. do it at your office class or yeah. at your gym class. Like totally. some teachers can own it, yeah. but I am not one of those teachers. No, yeah. Wow, Me- office class, wow. <laughs> <laughs> like, imagine with your, your work Corporate chanting. I know, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Nice. And for what it's worth, I've, I've heard your singing voice. I think it's fantastic. Uh-huh. So. Thanks. <laughs> that, that ended up being very awkward, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so I've seen online debate describing non-South Asian people leading Kirtan as cultural appropriation and the opposing viewpoint as well that leaving non-physical aspects out of yoga and out of yoga classes like Kirtan, it's equally disrespectful Uh, Is this something that you consider in your own teaching and practice and what's your point of view? Yeah, it's a tricky one. And there are times when I I do sort of question a little bit about sharing kirtan and other devotional practices. The way I feel is that I try to be as respectful as I can of the practice and what I've learned as I sort of mentioned before and sharing it in an authentic way, sharing my knowledge and the meanings and honouring the traditions and also sharing that I don't know everything, you know, and I don't profess to know everything and I'm always learning and it's a constant journey as well. And I, I mean, I also think if we were true to yoga sort of according to its roots, well, women weren't allowed to practice yoga at all. There was a lot less asana physical practice we should really be practicing the eight limbs of yoga. And so I do think about it a lot and we do discuss it. I discuss it with my community of friends and people who share sound practices. And so that's sort of how I feel about it at the moment. And it's a challenge with so many yoga studios and teachers around. I I guess I would say that people should see what feels authentic for them and, and what teachers and offerings are around that do feel authentic and true to to yoga for them. And like this Mm. is a question for all yoga teachers as well, not just people leading kirtan. If you're sharing something from another culture, I think that's something that we all need to be mindful of. Yeah, yeah. There's aspects of the sound practices that I think can be really great because it can be quite accessible because it doesn't matter what age you are. It doesn't matter if English isn't your first language. In fact, great, because we're singing usually in another language anyway. It's great for older people or someone who might not be able to participate in a regular movement class. And so that's one thing that I really love about the sound practices. A lot of people come and they might be in a chair or there's someone in a wheelchair and older people and kids. And I find it quite inclusive in that respect. Yeah. And there's all this great research as well on how healthy it is for our brains to sing and to do music and to learn a new language. Mm. So if you are teaching to a diverse community group where people have different health challenges or older people, like so healthy for those people to do these practices. Yeah. 
I guess it's it's it can be sort of a form of meditation. So a lot of people struggle to just sit and meditate, you know, in silence in a cross-legged position. How we know that we or should all be pose. meditating <laughs> just like that. And so it gives you a focus point. And you do find that when you're seeing or it might not necessarily be kirtan, but some sort of sound practice. So maybe listening to music or bowls and it can help sort of still the mind and turn on the parasympathetic nervous system. So you you feel more calm, your breath slows down. And for me, that's certainly been a great experience. I do find that it helps calm me down um, and it is a big part of my practice at home to sort of help me meditate. Hello, Ran here. We've entered a whole new world and it seems that everyone is moving their offerings online. It can be overwhelming. What technology should I use? What equipment is best? How do I best tailor my teaching on the internet? Do I need a website? Joe and I are proud to announce that we're offering a new mentoring and support package. We have expertise in running a small home-based studio, website development, producing online videos, live stream and Zoom classes, and we have a depth of knowledge that comes from speaking to leading minds of contemporary yoga culture through our two years of creating the Flow Artist Podcast. We're here to offer mentoring for your teaching, technical assistance and even moral support. If you want to learn more, just go to gardenofyoga.com.au slash mentoring and I'll leave a link for that in the show notes. All right, that's enough from me. Let's get back to our conversation with Alicia Leonard. You mentioned before we started recording, this is a surprise question, uh-huh. but you mentioned uh, you'd been running the QTI classes down at Dance of Life. I was just wondering if you'd want, if you'd like to speak about that a little bit. We spoke to Anu who yeah. used to run them a few years ago now. So perhaps people haven't heard of that class and would like to mm. hear a bit about yeah. it. Yeah. Well, that's funny because I've never actually met Anu and I saw that that class was running, always had an intention to go. And then I saw one day that the teacher couldn't make it and they were cancelling the class. So I said, hey, I could teach it. And so that evolved into me teaching last year for a number of weeks. Um, And I really enjoyed it. I think that it's really important for people, everyone in the community to have these tools, access to these tools. And so it's a donation-based class and those donations usually go to an Indigenous group or another local non-for-profit, maybe doing work in the LGBTIQ plus space. And so the way it's running right now is uh, my partner and I actually are running the next seven weeks and then Anu, I think, will come back and run a block Um, And there's a couple of other teachers. Kylie also teaches it. We've all done sort of a trauma-informed training of some sort. And it's run at Dance of Life in Fitzroy. And, you know, it's open for people who identify as as LGBTIQ plus or as an ally. And so it eliminates that financial barrier that a lot of people might face but also it's just an accessible sort of welcoming space. And so, yeah, we're running yin with sound. So my partner's teaching a, a yin class and then I'm offering sound, handpan and a plethora of instruments that I bring in and my voice as well, which I think the sound actually does lend itself to a restorative style class. And there's quite a good community of people that come and it's great. And I guess that leads us into talking about home song. Yeah, Yes. Hmm. (laughs) It's just kind of an evolution right now. 
So, I mean, at the moment I'm working full time. I work in sport and recreation. And so I'm about to change my life quite dramatically. Um, my partner and I quit our jobs. And yeah, as I said, we're moving overseas to London. So probably for a year plus. And it's really the impetus for me to push myself out of the nine to five grind, which has been great. And I've loved my work and all the opportunities and connections. But I feel that I really want to share more yoga practices with people and more of the sound work. So I don't have a great plan as yet going to go to India for six weeks and do a sound training there, which is to play harmonium in the traditional raga style. And in the West, we play generally chords. So it's a little bit more challenging to play the melody line. So we'll see how that goes. And then we're going to arrive in London. So I started to put this website together because I'd have people ask me what I'm up to. And so I'd run off a list of I'm teaching this class and I have this meditation and these kirtans and this workshop is coming up. So it's sort of a hub for people to find things. In saying that, I do feel a bit uncomfortable, as I think a lot of people do about promoting myself a lot. But yeah, I think it's also a necessity. So yeah, it's going to be my sound offerings and meditation and any sort of yoga and kirtans that I'm leading. And I'll put a bit of content on there of previous sound clips and videos that I've got. So really the name Home Song is just, I guess it's about your calling, like what's in your heart and what's really calling you to your to your true self and to your home. And so that, yeah, it's been calling me for a while to to sort of step out of the nine to five grind. So I'm excited about it. I don't want to ruin your trip to India by making you do a lot of social media homework, <laughs> but it would be amazing if you shared that journey. Mm. Yeah, I intend to do that. I finish up work in a few weeks and I'm planning to put some content on the website and then get people that are interested to sign up, you know, to a, a newsletter Maybe not an overload of emails, but like a regular update of what's been going on because I think it's going to be amazing, this training. There aren't many trainings that are purely sound. So a lot of them might be yoga teacher training, say 200 hours with a little bit of sound in there. But this one's recognized by Yoga Alliance and it's 200 hours a month and literally every day singing mantra learning an instrument and leading kirtans. Where um, is it in India? It's in Rishikesh. Oh, amazing. Yeah, so oh, yeah. I've seen the workbook and it's pretty big, so <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> yeah. And what a great town to stay in and eat in for that yeah. whole month. There's so many good places to eat in Rishikesh. Obviously, yeah. you're there for the spiritual practice, yeah. not the food, but <laughs> it's a bonus. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I was wondering if you could tell us about the LGBTIQ leadership course that you've been attending. Yeah, so it's just wrapped up. Uh, late last year. And yes, yeah, so I mentioned I work in sort of sport and recreation. Actually, my manager nominated me for this course. And so I think it was about six months and it was it's run by Leadership Victoria and they run a number of leadership courses. So to upskill people, often someone will pay for it individually or your workplace would pay. But this was actually funded by the state government and we had to apply and then it was quite a rigorous process and interview and talk about ourselves and our intentions. I don't think I mentioned I was moving to London at that interview. (laughs) (laughs) You can be a leader from anywhere. (laughs) Look, yeah. So 30 of us did it. And so you had to have lived experience. So you had to identify as part of, you know, these communities. And the idea is that at-risk groups, 
usually have very little funding. There's usually very few people doing a hell of a lot of work. And I've experienced that working at a women's sporting club a few years ago as well. And so the idea is to upskill people already in leadership roles or with leadership qualities doing work you know, to improve outcomes for people who are part of the LGBTIQ plus communities. And so, yeah, there were people who were CEOs of companies, people working in finance and for non-for-profits and all sorts. And it was really great. So we, we sort of worked on projects together and we got to present them to the government, ideas for funding and focus for what's what's happening in the future. And And the idea is to sort of have an army of amazing people, network, I would say, of amazing people that work in this space and keep getting stronger so we can keep doing good work um, and not burn out. <laughs> yeah. Do you mind? Oh, sorry, Ryan. I was just going to say that sounds amazing. Yeah. I was going to say, do you mind sharing what your project was that you proposed? Yes. Well, we worked we worked on burnout. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's a really common thing and it's common in yoga teachers and it's common in pretty much any area that you work in. Often there isn't enough money to go around. People do a lot of volunteer work and those people tend to burn out. And so... Yeah, we were looking at how to, there's not really a solution. So the idea is more breaking down what are all the causes and what are some things that we could address. So it's not finished. It's sort of an ongoing project. And so, yeah, we're still going to keep in touch and keep working on that and potentially keep pushing it to the government. So, yeah, some of the other groups worked on things like poor mental health. And so I think so often when there's a problem in front of you, you jump to a solution. And the idea with this course was teaching us about looking at the whole picture and what's what's going into that and what the potential causes are. It's a bit like, you know, if you start mopping the floor and the, the tap is still running. So sometimes the solution won't help. You know, you have to look at a number of different things. So yeah, I don't have the answer as yet, but no, I'll keep it you posted. sounds interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like you're saying, there's not an easy answer. It's mm. looking at these multiple causes and how we can help to address yeah. some of and them. Getting lots of people on board to help. Yeah, I think even just acknowledging that that it's a real thing mm. and it's something to be particularly aware of if you are someone who gives a lot mm. of yourself, that that's not always sustainable all of the time. You have to take a bit of time to replenish your energy before yeah. you go back into that. And I think that's really valid for yoga teachers and anyone who's a space holder. And I see it a lot in my friends and my communities and with my teachers that so often we're sharing all these amazing things and sharing so much energy with other people and holding space for others I think sometimes we neglect ourselves and I've been guilty of that as well because we're so passionate and we want to share. Yeah, it's also important to recognise when it's it's okay to sometimes say no and to step back and look after yourself. I think there's another layer to it as well where you feel like a failed yoga teacher if you're not taking care of yourself and doing your practice and doing your own self-care. So then you like beat yourself up mentally as well because Mm. most teachers have the awareness to know how important these things are and then sometimes life circumstances just mean that there's no time for that this week. Yeah, one of the previous guests on the podcast, Joe Buick, shares this idea around hierarchy, which really resonates with me. And so, you know, we sort of beat ourselves up if we don't have 60 minutes to practice yoga, whereas really 
if you roll around on the floor for 10 minutes and you take five breaths, that's great. And, you know, it's equally good to do that. So acknowledging that it doesn't have to be 60 minutes or 90 minutes or else you're a failure. And if that was 10 minutes that you didn't spend looking on your phone and stressing yourself out about how much you have to do that day, even better. Absolutely. With this course, did you have any personal goals you wanted to achieve going into it? Or were you just about sort of, I'm just going to see what happens here? Yeah, look, to be honest, I was a little apprehensive to do it. I had quite a lot on and I also knew that I was going to be, we were sort of planning our move overseas. But, and and I'm the type of person that wants to commit fully to something. So, um, no, I decided I could make it work and my work were really supportive. So I would take a day off when I had the course on on the weekend. Really just to be more connected, I think, within the community. I mean, I do have a same-sex partner, but I would say I'm quite connected in sport and recreation and leisure. But I, I don't know that many people within the sort of rainbow community. And that was really amazing. I made a lot of connections because we would have guest speakers as well as our sort of group of 30. And so now, you know, everyone's constantly sharing ideas and projects and getting involved in each other's amazing things that they've got going on. So I I do think that was sort of achieved. I do feel a lot more connected. And I would like to explore a sort of queer-friendly class in London. I think that it's something that's quite important. I think a lot of people, particularly people who might be trans or gender diverse, who are at risk of low, of poor mental health, high risk of suicide, these people could really use these tools from yoga, movement, meditation and breath. And so often those same people can't access classes at a regular studio because of the cost or they might not resonate with the teacher. And so, yeah, I do feel sort of a renewed passion for doing some more of this work in my own way in the future. You mentioned, you know, you've made these connections. You feel like you've made some lifelong sort of solid bonds there. And everyone calls it the, the LV family. So Leadership Victoria. Yeah, it's really great. And it was great to meet some people doing amazing work in the field. So like Ro Allen, I'm not sure their exact title, but basically the Rainbow Commissioner. And Victoria is really progressive in this space. We have some amazing people in government and in positions of power doing good work. But sadly, not all of Australia is looking like that. So, you know, hopefully into the future, we've sort of achieved marriage equality a couple of years ago, but there's a few things that aren't so great right now. There's this religious freedom act that could come into play and it would give people the right to discriminate based on their religious belief, which is pretty bad for for us if that came in. So there's a lot of work to do still. Yeah. This is a contact. I teach Pilates to a lovely group of women who all work at hospitals and one of them works at the children's hospital and gender is, I think, her main area of passion and focus. And people in her department actually receive death threats. Mm. Like there's been a campaign of letter writing and articles in newspapers about the work that they do, supporting families and helping kids, Mm. you know, working with gender identity And I just find it mind-blowing that, like, all these women are amazing and put their whole heart into their work and they're getting death threats just for trying to help people. Yeah. Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, when I think about the, you know, the marriage equality debate and I live in Brunswick, which was one of the highest yes votes, but it's in Moreland and part of Moreland and Greater Moreland in Glenroy and Faulkner were some of the highest no votes in the state. 
So, you know, sometimes I think we associate with people who have the same beliefs as us and we live, we do often live in a bubble. So, yeah, it can be important to recognise that not everyone has the same belief depending on your life experience or where you've grown up and it's difficult to sort of try and get your head around that sometimes. And, yeah, I mean, hopefully we'll see change um, continue. And for those outside of Melbourne, Moreland's actually very close to Brunswick, right? Yeah. yeah so, yeah. yeah. Speaking of Brunswick, I know you've been working at Brunswick bars there. Well, nice tie and run. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I know that you guys do a lot of uh, inclusive work there. Um, perhaps you'd like to talk about that a bit. Yeah. So a friend of mine actually worked at another leisure centre and I was inspired by this swimming night that they put on a trans swim night. So really trying to offer a safe space for people who identify as trans and gender diverse. And I sort of felt that we had an opportunity to do a similar thing um, and to create a safer environment in a leisure centre, which is a space that a lot of people feel apprehensive about anyway. You know, you're sweaty, you're wearing tight clothes, you're exposing your body when you go swimming. And so for people who identify as LGBTIQ+, particularly trans and gender diverse people, it can be really daunting and scary. Um, and as a result, a lot of people don't exercise. Yeah, so basically the management team came on board. We're owned by Moreland Council, but we're run by YMCA. And so they all came on board and, yeah, we've run, we've just run our fourth event, I think it is. And so we open up the pools and the gym and we sort of rainbify everything, have some music and maybe some refreshments. And so we do it at very low or no cost and target it as sort of an inclusive day. And of course, allies are welcome to come. And it's been great, really positive. And it's actually been really heartwarming because we had very little sort of negative feedback. If if anything, like one or two little comments. And we were prepared for potentially a lot more than that. And just what we saw was a really great safe space. And we saw a lot of sort of strong allies come out in support. So local businesses and staff, a lot of staff have felt more comfortable being open about their sexuality and also coming out as allies, asking what they can do to help. And what we've also seen is a flow on. So this was the first event of its kind at a YMCA. And since then, a few other centres have come on board. So YMCAs and other leisure centres are doing similar things, which is really great because obviously exercise helps you physically. You get stronger, you know, blah, blah, blah. We all know that. But it helps with improving mental health and social outcomes. So it's not really just about exercise. It's a bit, It's a sort of about taking over parts of the community and making them safer for everyone. And so having just explained all of the challenges that people might feel about going into an exercise-focused space, what are some of the things that teachers and studios can change or improve to be more inclusive? Yeah, there's a, there's a long list and I think if just one or two, something that can be tweaked a little bit, that's great. It's really dependent on the space so and what who you're trying to target. Um, but obviously if there are stairs or a space is difficult to get into, that already stops anyone maybe with a disability of, of being able to get there. And so you could run, you know, a chair yoga class or something else, but you have to also consider how they would get into the studio. The size of the space and... And even things like the the colour of the space, the walls, you know, I've heard that white walls can often 
trigger people, it can feel a bit institutional. But, you know, majority of spaces do have white walls. So that's just a couple of things to consider. And we were talking earlier about signage as well. So signs, for example, everyone's welcome or, you know, no discrimination here. Something small like that on the door can, I think, can be really profound for people to see. And I would say toilets are a really big one and not everywhere has the luxury of being able to change their toilets or make them fully accessible. But where possible, not having toilets that are sort of gendered, single gendered, or if they could be fully, you know, open for anyone to use, that's the ideal scenario. So also signposting by amenity can be great. So for example, instead of a traditional sort of stick figure man, you could have a sign of a toilet, a shower and a urinal. And then in some spaces I've seen, um, for example, Latrobe Uni in the city, they do have single gender toilets, but they have a ex- fully accessible all gender bathroom. And there's some great signs that say everyone is welcome, use whatever suits your needs best. So even a sign like that. I think as well, things like forms and the specific items you ask for someone about themselves. Some of it's unnecessary now. I mean, having to state your gender on a form or use honorifics. So Mr. Bowen, you know, when we can just say, ah, Bowen or calling people sir and madam is a bit outdated and it's unnecessary unless of course you're running a class for a specific group. So if you were running a class for asylum seeker women, you would want, you know, to make sure that was safe for them. But otherwise I just don't feel that there's a need to ask for someone's gender. Those are a few considerations. Costs can also be a big one. And obviously businesses need to be viable financially. But in the case of maybe a workshop or an event, it could be nice to sometimes have a partially funded offer for someone who might benefit, but where cost is a barrier. And I see a lot of teachers doing that. And I think we're we're quite progressive in Melbourne in that a lot of teachers are exploring trauma-informed practices more and more. And I see a lot less physical assisting and I see the use of consent cards or just more dialogue about it and people using a lot more invitational language. And I've experienced that where a a student has said to me, oh, you know, do you have a trauma-informed background because of the language I've used? One last thing that I would mention is also the clothing that you wear. I tend to wear loose linen style kind of clothing. You know, not everyone wants to wear tight yoga pants and crop tops and things and that works for some people and that's totally fine. But also for teachers who might be teaching an at-risk group, I think it's important to think about that we want all bodies and all people to feel welcome. I would also say maybe something to consider in your social media and in the imagery that you're using to promote that particular class or workshop. Make an effort to show diverse bodies, diverse ages and think about what you're wearing so that no one feels like that class will not be suitable for them if they are in a different type of body. Mm. And the pose that you choose, maybe pick something that everyone's going to be able to do rather than something aspirational. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think there is a shift on social media as well. I've seen a lot more. I've seen a change in what people are wearing and what they're showing on social media and less sort of amazing poses. Not to say that there isn't a place for doing, you know, I love doing an inversion or an arm balance when when it's the right time. But, yeah, really thinking about what you're sharing. 
And like totally appropriate if what you're sharing is an inversions workshop. Maybe not the best choice for your beginner's class. That's right. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Flowing on a little bit from your burnout um, (laughs) topic and a few of the other things you've shared, you seem like you're pretty switched on to self-care or switched on to the need. Are there any self-care practices that you personally find really helpful? Yes. Gosh, and it's evolved so much and it just always does, doesn't it? You know, seasonal and whatever's going on. To be honest, right now, I'm not doing a huge amount of physical asana, maybe a bit of floppy sort of movement at home and then a class or two per week in a studio. I do a lot of breath practice and sometimes that looks like lying in bed doing it. Sometimes it's seated, seated. And I do a lot of sound practice, surprise, surprise. And that might be playing something and singing along or humming, yeah, or playing an instrument, playing the harmonium, or I'm actually learning the flute as well right now. So I find that quite calming and really enjoyable. (laughs) I always ask my teachers for homework and a lot of people would think, oh gosh, but yeah, I'm totally that annoying person that actually does their homework. And I also, I love cooking and hands-on things. I like making things with my hands, beeswax wraps and candles and, you know, sage sticks and stuff like that. Kind of just, I don't know, it makes me feel calm. And then for me in terms of exercise, I really like swimming. So I find it quite meditative and I was a competitive swimmer when I was younger. And yeah, it sort of helps me digest my day in the pool So, yeah, I love being in nature as well. That's one thing that it is a challenge in Melbourne and it's going to be a challenge in London, but try to sort of get out in nature as much as I can. And I guess this is from the point of view of maybe maybe someone doing their teacher training now or someone who has done it, who has a full-time job and doesn't want to quit their full-time job to be a full-time yoga teacher maybe doesn't even have a workplace that would be down for changing it into part-time hours, how do you add in everything that you need to do to launch a yoga business or sustain a yoga business when you already have a full-time job? Like how do you organise your time? Mm, It's a massive challenge. Yeah, my ideal scenario would be, you know, three days a week or something like that. I do have the luxury of a full-time salary um, and so I I do share a lot of practices at low or no cost or by donation. But yeah, I can't practice with a lot of teachers that I really love because they teach in the middle of the day and that's hard. And I actually went from part-time to full-time about 18 months or so ago. So that was a bit of a challenge for me. But I think it's important to have some form of practice and back to the hierarchy thing, it doesn't have to be every single day. But I do think if you're teaching yoga you do need to practice and that could look like at home on your own or with an app or in a studio. And there's also, there's something to be said for practicing with teachers and learning from them. So, you know, it might be a sequence that you really liked doing or something that they said that resonated with you or a quote from someone that you could then go and read more about. So for me, having a little bit of at home and then still trying to get to one class a week in a studio. I think that's quite important. I think that really is the path to burnout when all you're doing is working and giving out and not prioritising doing the things that you love that led you to becoming a yoga teacher and like taking that time to take care of yourself. Yeah, I think a lot of yoga teachers experience that and it can be hard to pay the rent, you know, if you've got to 
constantly be teaching classes. And because I, I have an exercise background, so I've experienced this working as a personal trainer as well, you know, so often the classes or the clients are 6 a.m., 6 p.m. So you'd be lucky to get a few in a row or sort of a day's work. So you'd be often, you know, getting up in the morning, teaching, going home probably or doing something else and then coming back and teaching again. And I think that's really difficult to sustain. More and more I see friends teaching a few classes a week and just teaching in studios or classes or groups that really work for them and then taking on other work. But everyone has a different sort of scenario. But, yeah, it's important to recognise the burnout thing is really there. So this is kind of just random, but are there any yoga adventures you're really about excited about in London? Well, you know, because I'm a Kirtan queen, I'm sort of, I always have these crushes on all these people. <laughs> so around Melbourne and around the world. And so I'm excited to go to London and I just guess be, you know, out of my little goldfish bowl. Um, Cause obviously it's a huge city. And so there is a lot of great stuff going on there and people from Europe in close proximity. So, yeah, I'm excited to hopefully make some connections and and find some nice communities over there. And I haven't done a lot of preparation, but I sort of I'm planning to just go and hang out in some yoga studios and chat with people and see what's happening. I I sort of get the impression that there's not so much yin over there yet, and that's starting to develop. So, uh, my partner and I have been sort of pondering yin and sound as a bit of an offering together, which we're doing here now, and that's been really a pleasure. So, yeah, watch this space. I've got something I'd like to send you to. So one of my favourite podcasts is the Guilty Feminist podcast, and they do live performances. So I reckon that would be an awesome London adventure to go to, like yeah. a live Guilty Feminist performance. Definitely. I listen to them as well, actually. Yeah, and there's a few, there's just a, a few great movement coaches and, and um, Kirtanis over there. It's going to be exciting. I do have one more question, and that is if you could distill everything that you've learnt and everything that you teach down to one core lesson, what do you think that one thing would be? Goodness. I think the biggest gift that I've received from my teachers has been listening to my intuition. And I think you truly do know what's right and wrong in the world or what's right for you and when something isn't quite right. It's about sort of being kind to yourself, listening when you're tired or when you're judging, um, listening to what you need and listening to that voice that sort of tells you, no, this job or this partner or this friend, you know, isn't for you. Yeah. So listening to listening to your intuition, that's what I would say. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for making the time to speak with us today and uh, all the best in London. Can't wait to hear about your adventures over there. Thanks, crew. It's been a pleasure. Yay, thank you. <laughs> and that was our conversation with Alicia. Now, if you're listening out there, Alicia, I wish you and your partner, Harriet, well. Our thoughts are with you and I hope our paths cross again sometime soon. For our next episode, we are speaking with Kelly Donato. Kelly is a yoga teacher, a podcaster, and the author of Living the Sutras. Again, this conversation was recorded a few months ago, but I think the sutras may be needed now more than ever. So look out for that episode in a fortnight. 
Our theme is Baby Robots by GoSoul and is used with permission. Get his music from gosoul.bandcamp.com. Joe and I would like to honour the elders of these wisdom traditions of yoga and mindfulness from India and beyond, as well as honouring the traditional custodians of the land where this podcast is recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Thank you so much for listening. Joe and I really appreciate you spending your time with us. Aroha nui. Big, big love. <laughs>